Welcome to the Exploring Leadership Podcast, where we interview experienced HR leaders and executives to define what the most effective leaders are made of and how to help underperforming leaders transform into the best they can be. Brought to you by Lumen Leadership. Now, here's your host, Spencer Taylor. My guest today is Aaron Levinson, who is the President and Chief Revenue Officer at Hofseth North America. We're going to hear a little bit more about what Aaron is doing with Hofseth and more about his story. Uh, very excited to jump into the interview. It was a lot of fun. I just finished it a few minutes ago and excited for you to hear uh, the energy and kind of the, just the dynamic nature of our discussion. Uh, so many powerful leadership principles embedded throughout. A lot of discussion around what it takes to not become too traditional in the sense that what has worked in the past will continue to work in the future. There's no no guarantee of that. And I would say there's even a guarantee that that's not the case, especially in our most modern world, in, in our uh, post-pandemic uh, world that we're in. Uh, we have to be able to ad- adapt as we go, um, carry who we are certainly forward with us as well. Uh, a lot of, lot of discussion around that. I won't spoil it all, though. Let's go ahead and jump right into the interview with Aaron Levinson. Uh, I think a great place to start would be to talk about Elvis. <laughs> Why would we want to talk about Elvis, Aaron? I, I, <laughs> the, that's a wonderful start to this, uh, Spencer. I, my name is Aaron Levinson. Uh, I only spell my name with one A. And I probably get asked 10 times a week if I really know how to spell my own name, by the way. I get asked that all the time. Like you call customer service and they're like, tell me your name. You're like, my name's Aaron. A-R-O-N. Is it A-A-R-O-N? It, no. I, I Like I know how to spell my name, I promise. Uh, and so, yeah, so the, the, it's interesting. I'll tell you, like my mom was an Elvis fan. Um, Elvis's middle name is Elvis Aaron Presley. And there is a definite conspiracy and lots of chatter online about whether or not Elvis's middle name is spelled properly on his tombstone at Graceland. And I just like to, uh, I'm just going to go with it, that I was named after Elvis and that uh, his tombstone is misspelled and it should be with one A. <laughs> well, it's fantastic. I think maybe we should just plan a road trip and go confirm whether that's true or not. Anytime. <laughs> that's great. Well, hey, I, I really am grateful for you taking time. I know you're busy. You're you're a traveling maniac. We'll hear more about your routine and where you've been and, and some of that. Uh, but let, let's just talk about you in general, whatever you want to share with our audience about uh, just your story kind of up, up until now. No problem. I, I really appreciate the time today. I have been really looking forward to our time together as well. And as an introduction, my name is Aaron Levinson with just one A. And I'm an accomplished sales, marketing, operations, and turnaround executive. Uh, I have a diversified experience in startups to medium-sized companies, including food, e-commerce, digital media, consumer clean tech, SaaS, fintech, and rewards programs. And I'm born and raised in Southern California, uh, graduated from the University of Missouri, Columbia. I'm a tiger and studied Spanish and lived with host families in Cuernavaca and Guadalajara, Mexico, uh, while I was at the University of Missouri. And Spencer, I, I started my career in the internet advertising sales, and, and my journey has really allowed for what I think is a successful and diverse career uh, with a common thread of driving revenue, increasing margins, and, and really building winning teams. Um, currently, I have the honor of working with a group of passionate, hardworking, mission-driven, seafood status quo challenging professionals uh, as the president and chief revenue officer at Hofseth North America. 
Uh, I joined the team in January of this year. And a little bit of, on us, we're a vertically integrated global fresh and frozen seafood company uh, that farms, harvests, prov- uh, processes, sells and distributes more than 40, mounds, 40 million pounds per year, uh, including Norwegian salmon, steelhead trout, cod, haddock, and a bunch of other fun stuff. And the last thing I'll share with you is that, you know, when I'm not working, um, I volunteer at San Diego State uh, University as a guest lecturer. Uh, I advise various startups like Pollen, uh, which is an e-commerce return startup based out of Atlanta. Uh, Mima, uh, which is a purpose-driven upcycling kitchenwares company based in Guatemala. And I mentor at Plug and Play and the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator. A uh, little bit about me uh, in my personal life. I'm married to my lovely wife for uh, 20 years next month. Uh, I have two kids in high school. And on most Sundays, I'm a catcher in a wood bat baseball league. So it's definitely a full plate, and I absolutely love the action. Well, fantastic. I love it. I I always pick up on just interesting things in your intro, so I'd love to go back and just hit on a couple things. First, uh, one of the first things you said as you described what you do, what you've been doing uh, over the years is turnaround executive, like you're you enjoy the turnaround. Uh, Interested to know, like, how did that come about? Was that an accidental thing? Was it a deliberate decision? Very good question. And it was an accident. Um, This is probably five years ago. I was texted uh, by a friend who runs a seafood company here in LA. And he texted me and said, Hey, I, I, you know, what are you up to? And I was like, why, what do you want? And and he says, I think I need you. I'm I'm building a new 160,000 square foot processing facility, seafood company, um, nine miles from your house. And I think I need you. And, And I told him, I don't know anything about seafood. I don't know anything about food. I'm a startup digital guy and, you know, I'm not sure I could add any value. And so long story short, I ended up joining the company. And the first thing I did to learn the company and learn the industry was literally go through their P&L. And, and, and the owner of the company said to me, I know there's savings to be found. I don't know where, I don't know what, but I know it's there and I think you can find it. And along the way, you'll be able to learn our business. The seafood industry is not easy. It's a whole new vocabulary, the, the supply chain from around the world, and that piece of fish ending up in your grocery store shelf. It has a long journey, and it's not easy. So he was right. I didn't know seafood. I didn't know how this thing worked. I didn't really understand how their business was run. And, and long story short, Spencer, I was able to go through their P&L, go through all the different expenses from boxes and bags that would be used in the production facility to paper towels, toilet paper, IT services, trucking, you name it. I went through probably 15 different things. And long story short, I found them millions of dollars in annual savings. That, those millions of dollars went right to the bottom line. And I'll never forget when I found the money the first time, and it was a few hundred thousand to start. And my owner said to me, do you know how much shrimp I'd have to sell to net that kind of margin? And my answer was no, because I don't know what the margins on shrimp are. <laughs> so that's that's really where the turnaround thing came from. And so now I just kind of have that eye and that lens to be able to dig into any part of any business and really try to help them tighten the screws and increase their margins. Fascinating. I, I love it. I love the power of, of the result you were able to achieve, how material it was, you know, substantial it was for the company. One of the things that stood out to me in our off-air conversation uh, the other day was that uh, you're now back in the seafood industry and you described it as, uh, and we can we can cut this out if we need to, because I'm not trying to disparage the industry at all, but kind of a tired, non-innovative, older, traditional 
uh, industry. So, I mean, can we talk a little bit, a little bit more about that? Like what drew you back to it and any other thoughts just about where the industry is now? So the, the first thing I'll say to you is do not cut this part out because it's very important and, and I have no problem, you know, being totally vulnerable and, and, and sharing kind of what this industry is all about. Um, but you're right. Everything you just said is spot on. It's it's very um, family owned and operated, multi generational. We've been doing the same thing all these years. It ain't broke. Don't fix it. All of those things. Um, and, and I'll tell you that that stuff bores the hell out of me. It, it just does. And so as I was coming to an end with my last um, group and, and employer, I, I was really thinking about you know does this industry really want innovation? Does this industry want to grow? Does this industry even have an ounce of entrepreneurial spirit in it? And my takeaway from all of the meetings and all of the people that I met, the answer was, I don't think this industry is for me. I'm a startup guy. I have that entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, I typically join a founder that's a technology founder, um, product development founder, and need somebody to go to market, drive sales, drive margin, all those things. And I just didn't see it in the industry. And, and I'll tell you, as I kind of got into the marketplace and started looking around, um, I just I really got lucky meeting Matt Mixter, uh, who's our CEO and, and founder of Hofseth North America and Wixter Seafood. And when I met him, I, all I kept thinking was, I've never met anybody like you in this industry. And, and it's actually really exciting because we just clicked in terms of energy, passion, uh, wanting to feed people healthy, sustainable proteins, right? Like even down to that level of feeding people and, and feeding their kids and, and feeding them healthy protein and doing it the right way. I think that's another thing about this industry is I only want to be involved in companies that are going to do this the right way, be transparent and, and, and put quality products into a bag or onto a, you know, a seafood counter. And so when I met Matt, I saw entrepreneur, I saw a growth opportunity. I saw a young, feisty, passionate, mission-driven, seafood status quo challenging team of 18 people. And it was a really easy decision to come on board. Well, it's, it, I love hearing about it just because it, it connects in with uh, some of my frustrations with a couple different industries that have, have had similar tendencies. Um, you know, you talk about just the, the kind of the tiredness or, or lack of innovation. Um, I, I gave a, um, a speech a while back about innovation and one of the, it was called the enemies of innovation. And one of those was basically the reason we do what we're doing is because that's how we've always done it. <laughs> I call it the enemy of tradition in the sense of like, that's just, we our founder did it back in 1912 and we're still doing it that way because that's how that guy said we should do it. And so we're just going to keep doing it that way. Why do you think companies get stuck in that place? Do you have any insights there? Companies that get stuck that are successful, they don't want to get unstuck because they're successful. When, when you're printing money and you've got million and you're a privately owned company, you honestly, your goals and objectives are your goals and objectives. You decide if you want to grow or not. If you're a public company, you're going to grow or you're going to die. Private companies that are family owned and operated, they can operate with a sense of urgency, not a sense of urgency. They can do whatever they want. And, and as long as they're all you know happy at the end of the day, they're happy and it's not going to drive innovation. I also think that there's a fear in innovation. God forbid something not go right. God forbid um, that packaging isn't you know doesn't present well on the shelf. Who cares? Let's let's fix it. Nothing that we ever worked on, at least in this industry, 
have I ever seen a change break the system or break a company? You can quickly pivot right back to where you came from. No harm, no foul. But there's not that appetite for even the little no harm, no foul. It's like, whoa, 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 we're making great money around here. Why would you want to do that? Well, don't you want to be a leader in the space? No. Don't you want to make more money? No. I'm, I'm satisfied. So I will tell you, though, that's a big part of me joining this company at Hofstadt North America and Wixter Seafood with Matt and the team because they want to continue to grow. They want to try new things. They want to be innovative. Um, and so it's just it's a really good fit for me. But to answer your question, I think people get comfortable because their bank account allows them to. And they're not and they're just risk adverse. Well, it sure sounds like Hofseth and you and the team there are are kind of a unicorn in the sense that from what I've seen, what I've observed um, in, in several different industries, it takes some type of a disruption, like a disruptive event um, at a specific family owned um, multi-generation type company. Uh, it takes something happening to them in order for them to kind of wake up and realize that they can change. But you guys are being proactive in it. It, 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 no, exactly. I mean, I think there's that proactive versus reactive, right? We are at Hofseth and Wixter Seafood being proactive and pushing the envelope and just going for it. And our customers love us for it, by the way, in terms of the innovation, new product innovation. Um, we have an amazing team in Norway that can make lots of really cool stuff. Some of it will succeed. Some of it will fail. Something will happen in the middle. But we have a massive multiple, like multiple processing facilities where we can cut fish and do lots of cool things with it. Now, to, to your point, though, about a little earlier, what you just said, you know, sometimes there are events that force companies to change, right? One of those events are not having a secession plan, right? Let's say you've got, you know, two generations of people running a company and the third generation wants nothing to do with your industry nor your company and don't care. What are you going to do as people get older and want to retire or God forbid pass away? This is just real life stuff. And so a lot of companies avoid that conversation. And I've witnessed it firsthand. They do not want to talk about what might be next. And so they're just going to go and grind and grind and grind until the bank account grows or they have a heart attack or have a stroke or something that's just not, you know, it's not healthy. But I do. I, I think a lot of companies are forced to change when those real life events happen. Um, and, and even the idea of wanting to sell their business. You lose total control when you sell your business. But if you don't have the next generation who actually wants to run it and grow it, what do you do? That's just real life stuff. It's not my opinion. It's just real yeah, life. Yeah, totally. And, and lots of really important questions, I think. So hopefully there are some listeners that are, are connected to that space, not meaning that just uh, industries like this that are kind of ready for something new uh, and maybe even with a company that... Uh, needs to wake up and, and kind of get moving again. Um, so let's kind of review again, not the unicorns because there's so few like you and your team, but there's been a disruptive event, uh, but then there's fear. You, you kind of talked earlier, it seemed to me that the center of of why they don't move forward ultimately comes down to that they're afraid. They're afraid of failure. They're afraid that whatever they're going to try uh, isn't going to work as well or that their customers will be mad at them or that whatever, you know, changes won't be accepted by their employees. And so all the employees will quit. Ultimately, all that comes down to fear. Uh, so how do they get rid of that? Or how do they overcome that? Do you think? And I know we're kind of, we're going to tie all this back into leadership, because ultimately, it comes down to leadership. But, uh, but what's your overall thought uh, from just a business development and, and strategist kind of standpoint of that's your area of expertise? 
It's a very good question. And, and you're right. Uh, there is a lot of fear. There, there's a fear at losing. There's a fear at negative press. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, all of that backs into ego. I, I really think that ego can get in the way of a lot of things in life, especially in business. And, and if your only goal is growing your own personal wealth and net income, um, that's 100% ego. Right. That's just looking at a bank account, seeing lots of zeros and feeling good about yourself. But at the end of the day, you've got an entire team uh, of people that, that depend on the business to pay their bills and support their families and raise their families and go on vacations and have a good life. Right. And but I do think that that fear is coming from ego. And, and I'll tell you, the fear, the fear can go away if you build a wonderful team around you. Right. You should be able to go take that month long vacation if you're the owner, knowing that things will get taken care of and you'll come back in and everything's still running and everything's great. You've got to build a winning team. And, and what I've seen in the past is that they don't want to build a winning team and they don't want to bring new people in because there's a fear there of change. There's a fear that something might not go right because of the lack of control. But if you actually brought people in that could do the job and you trusted them to do the job and you train them, to do the job, you should be able to disappear for a little bit and, and take a sabbatical, take a hiatus, do whatever you need to do, um, or simply pass the business on to them and just sit at home and collect a check while you're on vacation. I've seen that happen too, but I, I do. I, I think a lot of that fear, um, it's ego-driven and it can all be solved by building a wonderful team around you. I love that. So it, it feels like a good time to kind of shift toward that uh, specific topic then. What does it take to build that winning team? Uh, and maybe even we, we add a layer of complexity in saying that Let's assume that the existing team uh, is kind of the the last generation, like they're kind of stuck in that traditional trench, so to speak. Uh, they need to be, I don't know, uh, there needs to be an energy infusion or whatever we might say that. They need to be shaken uh, and awakened into the possibilities of what could be. How do you convert something like that into this high-performing winning team that's just going to go after it and dominate an industry? I appreciate the question. I think that to, to build out a winning team, you have to really be able to dissect the business and understand the needs of the business, right? So you're setting goals and objectives first, then you're looking internally on how are we going to get there? Then you start dissecting the people that are currently there and or what's needed. That's how you're going to move forward and, and just flat out win. Um, that's the thing that I love doing, Spencer, and anything I do is winning, whether it's on the baseball field or, or it's in business. I just, I love to win. And I, so there's, there's that part there. I think that when it comes to the existing people in a business, so you've got company goals and objectives that are probably new, refreshed, fine-tuned. Then you start looking at the needs of the business and the people that can help you get there. And if you look at the existing people, you're either going to see a couple of things. You're going to see people that are, you know, they're loyal, they're, they're passionate, they love the business, but their role is going to need to change to now support the goals of the company. And that person either has the skills or they need to go develop those skills, right? Whether it's through mentoring internally, whether it's through taking a course online and bringing that inside the business and working through it and putting it to real life, um, that's, that's one way to do it. There's also, and I'm a really firm believer on this too, but as, as a business evolves from like day one startup to the first million dollars in revenue to $150 million in revenue or whatever it is, that requires different types of people and different types of skill sets and different types of appetite to succeed. That person that was with you on day one and opening the doors might not be a good fit anymore when your business is $300 million a year. 
it takes an honest conversation to really be able to work through that with the employee and the team and the owners and everybody else. Um, and at some point you might determine that that person's just not a good fit anymore and let's not force it. And that's obviously the very last part of, of the whole conversation or the strategy. But sometimes you come to that, that conclusion where, you know, this, I'm sure it was a lot of fun when you first started this thing, but now this is a completely different business with, you know, a hundred people, not four. Uh, this is such great stuff. I love it. So uh, I'm a very process oriented thinker and, and person. So I'm trying to kind of break this down into these steps that you've so nicely laid out for us. So it seems like the first big thing is hitting reset on the goals, objective, strategy, kind of mission, not, not necessarily mission, but maybe the mission needs a refresh. Uh, like, let's just reset where we're headed. Uh, what are our main objectives in the short and medium term? And then it's an evaluation of the existing people and what maybe we could say gaps exist between uh, whether that's skills and knowledge or just motivation and interest in change and being part of this new version of the company. And then I think uh, this is maybe more my opinion rather than something you said. I don't want to put words in your mouth so you can say whether you agree with it or not, but uh, making some of those tough decisions. And I guess you kind of alluded to this, um, but uh, you might have to have some people that need to leave. Um, yeah, you did. You talked about that. Um, and you you may need to go get some fresh blood even. And that can be really hard for traditionalist type companies as well, because they feel like they're being disloyal to those who have been part of the family, so to speak, for uh, a couple generations. It's really hard to let your chief operating officer go if he or she is unwilling to think different and and lean forward uh, into the future. Yes, I, I think everything you just said is spot on. It was a wonderful summary. Uh, and, and I feel like you and I are definitely on the same page here. So uh, I really want to talk a little bit more about your past, because when we spoke off the air again, you you shared with me that you did not come from a cushy, comfortable life. Um, and I'm interested to hear a little bit about that and maybe talk about how that has shaped the way you think about things and just kind of the grit and drive that that is in you, uh, whether there's some connection to how you are today from that past. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a good question. And uh, I, I'm definitely comfortable talking about this topic because it's who I am. Um, and I think that people need to, to recognize that not everybody comes from um, money or their dad's business or what have you. Uh, I'll share with you that, you know, my, my parents divorced when I was two. Um, my sister was five at the time I was two. Uh, my mother who, who passed, um, 15 years ago when I was 30, she died of breast cancer. And, you know, my mom raised my sister and I with barely a high school education, didn't go to college until she was about 30. Um, you know, we, we just didn't have much growing up. I don't know how else to say it, but we had just enough. You know, we were on welfare and food stamps, um, sharing houses with other families, subsidized elementary school lunches. Um, these are all things that that really I remember and, and help, you know, just kind of shape who I am today. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, not having a father in my life um, definitely shapes who I am business-wise and also as a father myself. Um, I tend to find that because of that upbringing and how I was raised, that I have this piece of me of just never being satisfied and, and also a fear of going back to that place, you know, and, and, and going back to that eight-year-old version of myself and, and worrying about money and worrying about where I was going to sleep that night and whose house did I have to sleep at because my mom was taking night courses at Fullerton College. Um, those are all real life things that, that I don't think any kid should have to go through, but it is what it is. Um, it shapes who I am today. And, and honestly, Spencer, I think that's why um, I have the drive and the passion that I do. 
and it's probably fear-based. You know, I don't, I don't want to end up where I was as a kid and I don't want my kids to have to experience any of that either. Well, I'm grateful for what you shared because I, I just think there's several key points and principles we can uh, maybe peel back the layers on a little bit and dissect together. Um, I, I want to comment on your last statement first. I feel like, you know, you said something about it being fear-based. Um, I remember this is a weird example, but I remember a Shark Tank episode where um, it was Robert Herjavec, uh was talking to this. It was, I think it was actually the entrepreneur had just left and they had all said no to the deal or one of those scenarios where it's kind of in between and they're talking among the sharks. And mm-hmm. he, he said something about, well, I don't like getting up at 4 a.m., but I don't want to be poor. And so I'm willing to do that. And I mean, this is a man who's multi-billionaire, you know, obviously very successful. So mm-hmm. it was interesting to me and that, that it came to mind as you said that, because I'm sure it's not like you walk around being afraid all the time, but you have like this deep, deeply rooted, uh, almost like a healthy paranoia of like, I know what, how, what the other side of this looks like. Like if I just take my foot completely off the gas and stop trying, I know that I could end up back in that place. And so I have kind of this innate drive yeah. of, uh, of moving forward. You're, you're, you're spot on, Spencer. And I think that the other thing I'll share with you is that not only do I have that as part of my DNA and that, that core thing that drives me, but I'll tell you the thing that I've been doing over the last probably 10 years is trying to help other people not end up in that situation either. And I'll tell you that when I guest lecture at San Diego State and, and we're talking about, you know, students that are graduating within six months, they've got a lot of fear, right? They don't have a job. They have this degree. It's a tough marketplace, COVID. Um, I can see that in their eyes and, and I can be, you know, I, I can be empathetic, right, towards that fear. And then what I do is I literally share with them my story and my career path and my upbringing, by the way, to show them how I overcame it. And, and I share with them tips and tricks on how to build your network, how to meet interesting people, how to give back yourself and not always take, 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 take. Um, and so that's something I work on personally is to try to help other people, you know, avoid that same situation that I grew up in. And the funny thing is the students that I most resonate with are the ones that have a similar background as me, because when I walk in the door to guest lecture, they think I'm there to just tell this, you know, unicorn IPO you know, kind of, you know, story and how I bought a Ferrari and I own seven houses and, you know, whatever, all these various countries. And I tell them, I said, listen, here's my story. And this is, this is just how, this is my journey. And then I usually get like five or six students that are like, man, thank you so much for not coming in here and just telling us how great you are, but really talking about your struggles too. But I think we both share the the sense that there's a need for that type of, of authenticity and just rawness, I guess. Uh, just to be real about what it takes to be successful. Uh, the fact that once you become successful doesn't mean you're just always going to be successful. Um, I'm glad you came back around to this too, because one of the thoughts I had during the prior segment uh, <clears throat> was, and I hope there are some uh, some of our listeners today on this episode who are uh, maybe new to leadership or even entrepreneurs that are young entrepreneurs, uh, that you don't have to be born with a silver spoon in order to be successful. If you don't have to go through the hard things um, that it takes to get there. It's, I think it's sometimes you're missing out on something there. And, and I don't know, I'm, I'm curious if we want to peel back that a little bit more, because even as a father, we're, we're both fathers. Um, I want my kids to learn some of those tough lessons, but I don't necessarily want them to have to have the pain in the stomach of, of that hunger, or, you know, literal physical hunger or whatever, uh, elements that we we might have suffered as kids through our childhood. But how do we balance that? Right? We want our kids and kids metaphorically in the sense of those that are coming after us 
uh, in a broader sense too, to to learn and grow the way that we've learned and grown without having to to stub their toe like we've done. I'll tell you that one thing that that was kind of missing early on in my days was a mentor or an executive coach uh, or a career coach, whatever you know floats your boat. Um, I think that those types of people can really help direct steer, <clears throat> you know decision-making, uh, avoiding some major pitfalls, things like that. Um, I seem to have just, you know, had my own pitfalls and experienced my own pitfalls and learned from my own pitfalls. And I think that's the key there, Spencer, is that I learned from them, where a lot of people just continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over. And they refuse to look in the mirror and admit to themselves because of their own ego that things aren't going right because of them, not because of anything else, but them. So there's that. The other thing too that I think that you know when when people go to school and, and get their degrees, there's there's a few things that I don't think school teaches you that real life does. And I think a coach, a career coach, mentor can really help you with. You know, if you think about things like reputation, nobody teaches you about reputation, right? Um, your reputation is probably the most important thing. Meaning, don't overpromise and underdeliver. Do what you say you're going to do, and your reputation will follow. And people want to work with you, partner with you, be friends with you, whatever. Um, I also think that schools don't teach people how to network, right? In terms of really learning how to network, it's a skill. Um, I don't think schools teach people how to interview. I think interviewing is a skill in itself, and people need to practice in the real world. Um, passion and energy. You either got it or you don't. And what we talked about earlier in terms of what drives my passion and my energy, it is my childhood and not wanting to lose again and end up in a bad situation. Um, I think being courageous is, is something that's not taught. And I think you either got it or you don't. But being courageous takes risk because if it doesn't work, you're a failure, right? But I don't see it like that. I see it as you took a shot. You took a chance. Did you learn from it? Great. Now let's move on. There, there's no excuse anymore for not knowing a little bit about a lot of things. There's no excuse. When you and I were growing up, we can actually say before the internet, right? Yep. <laughs> you only yep. knew what you read about in an encyclopedia or what your parents or grandparents told you about, or you saw in a three-minute news story on the Channel 4 News at 6. Now we have information about everything. And so if you're not curious, that's on you. Yeah. Well, I love that. It's such a good list. I mean, just acknowledging that one of the things I wrote down from earlier as we're trying to wrap all this together a little bit, and then maybe we'll close with... Uh, <clears throat> with action items, like what can we do with this? Uh, acknowledging that that I'm the problem, basically, like being willing to say it's me. Actually, I can't point out it and say it's it's him or her or, or that process or that system, but rather I, as the CEO, owner, founder, influencer, it's my it's on me to fix it. Um, worrying about your reputation, like I guess uh, being a good steward, maybe uh, we could say of your reputation, being thoughtful about that. I loved your comments around networking as well. Again, true networking, building real, real, real relationships, not through manipulation or quid pro quo or anything like that, but genuine human connection, um, passionate energy, courage, continuous learning. Just all of that is so good. So how do we how do we distill at least one of either those things or just something else that has stood out to you during our conversation down into one one or two specific little pieces that somebody listening can grab hold of and go put to work right away? The one thing that comes to mind is just simply being authentic. I think that that could lead to just an amazing career, personal life, et cetera. And, and I'm only saying that because I don't think I even figured that out until probably three years ago, by the way, where it was starting to become exhausting trying to be something that I wasn't or that the business wanted me to be or somebody wanted me to be. 
And, and it's just exhausting. And, and I came to a conclusion a couple of years ago with some help and some coaching that I was no longer going to try to be something I wasn't. I was going to be who I was and I was going to lean in hard on anything that I was passionate about and felt that I could add value on. But also on the flip side, I'm not going to enter a room and suck the oxygen out of the room and be that guy because nobody likes that guy. So I think that that authenticity, I know it's a wonderful buzzword these days, like ego and leaning in and being vulnerable and all those things, but they're, they're definitely buzzwords for a reason because they matter. Um, and I'll tell you that, you know, during my time, <clears throat> you know, recently, especially with Hoff, the Hofseth group and, and Wixter Seafood group, you know, one thing that I said to every single person when I met them one-on-one as I was integrating into the company was that you will always get the authentic version of me. And if you ever feel like you're not, I want you to call me out. And hold me accountable because that's how I want to operate moving forward. And um, I love working with people that are authentic and real. Um, and it just it just makes the world go around, I think, a little bit easier. Totally agree. I love it. I, I agree also that it's a, it's a kind of a good umbrella that, that uh, spans a lot of the, I guess, more micro pieces that we've touched on. If we can be our true authentic selves and figure out what that means then a lot of these other things sort of take care of themselves. The, the other thing I was going to say, too, is listening. I, I think that being a great listener is, I'm going to say it's a unique skill because I don't know a lot of people that are good listeners. And, and it probably took me 15 years out of my you know, journalism degree out of the University of Missouri to realize that I got a listening degree and, and probably a writing degree. I spent a lot of money and a lot of time and you know, all that stuff to get a listening degree. But it, it's such a good skill because the more you can listen, the more you can observe um, emotional intelligence is probably a whole nother conversation that we can have as well, but being able to listen and read a room and ask good open-ending probing questions, um, can really create dialogue and a collaborative effort to solve real problems and to grow. Um, and so I think between, you know, being a great listener, asking really good open-ended questions and being authentic, I think that's a nice foundation for, for really any leader. Fantastic. I totally agree. And I love your comments around listening too. And I, I do think that's, uh, it's one of those additional, I guess, a companion piece of the being authentic uh, element that you did such a good job uh, articulating for us. So that's awesome. Well, um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been so tremendous. Do you have any final words you want to share before we end this up? And, and maybe we'll uh, circle back and do an EQ conversation because I love talking about emotional intelligence and maybe we can we can do a, a 2.0 episode later. That sounds like a wonderful plan to me. Uh, this has been great for me as well. I'm, I'm grateful that we've met and that I can share my story. Um, if any of your listeners want to take this offline and, and have some networking conversations, I'm wide open to it. And I appreciate your time today as well. Excellent. Well, so th- and thank you for mentioning that. Uh, how can they do that? How can they get in touch with you? What's the best way to reach out? LinkedIn is a wonderful place to find me. And um, I'm active there and, and more than willing to, to engage and connect. Okay. Terrific. We'll make sure we include that in the notes as well. Maybe your, your profile uh, to make it easy. And uh, once again, just so much gratitude, Aaron, for you taking the time. Thank you, Spencer. I appreciate it. The most prevalent uh, takeaway for me during this particular conversation with Aaron, it really has to do with authenticity. I like how he pointed out that it's, it's become kind of a buzzword and maybe overused to a point. But at the same time, he commented, and I agree with his comment, that uh, there's a reason it's a buzzword because it's important. So if you don't, if you're listening and you don't feel like you've found your authentic self yet, if you feel like you've kind of been playing uh, as a couple different versions of yourself, maybe you're kind of one way with your family and friends, 
and then you have a completely different disposition, maybe even a different set of values with those that you work with, maybe a completely a, yet a third different set of values and disposition with people you worship with. If you're if you're a, faith, a religious person, um, whatever other parts of your life there are, I think the more segments that you try to maintain, the more versions of yourself that you try to maintain, the more challenging life becomes. It's almost like telling lies. It's a weird example, maybe. I think we may have even touched on this in a, pre a previous episode. But uh, if you tell a white lie, you have to remember what the lie was to maintain the, the lie, right? You have, to, you have to remember what you said uh, because it wasn't true. Um, so I think that that is a great way to think about being authentic. If we're just ourselves all the time, if we have a tendency to speak our mind, hopefully with, uh, with respect and kindness, but if that's how we are, then we should do that because there's no one else like the true you in the entire world. I know that sounds kind of a little woo-woo or maybe strange, but I think it's an important truth to acknowledge. And Aaron helped me think more about that for myself. And I'm just grateful for the way that he was was uh, so authentic and uh, and transparent in our conversation, being willing to talk about a tough childhood and, and some of those aspects. Those, those things aren't always easy. So that's number one. And then the second, the importance of making real connections. And these are absolutely correlated, these two things, being authentic and making real connections, building real relationships that lead to opportunities, uh, again, not just one-sided opportunities, but opportunities to add value to other people and have value added to yourself. I am just finishing up a book called Who Not How by Benjamin Hardy and Dan Sullivan, and it is phenomenal. If you haven't checked out Who Not How yet, I highly recommend it. But the main point of that book is that we can be successful on our own, but it is so hard to do that. Uh, especially if we want to level up our success on an ongoing basis. It requires more and more of us because we are the ones doing the how in the, in the vernacular of the book, rather than thinking who can help me do this or who can do this for me. Um, and there's so much power in that, especially for those of you who are entrepreneurs, business owners, executives. Um, you have a chance to, rather than how can I find five more hours this week, who can I turn to, who can take care of that 15-hour task or those 50, 20 hours worth of tasks so that I can focus on the things that I'm naturally good at. Again, tying back into our being our authentic self. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of food for thought and a chance to kind of map out who you are as you, what, it, what does your authentic self really look like and what areas of your life do you feel aren't completely in alignment with you as that authentic person. And hopefully there's something that emerges in your thought process that allows you to uh, to make some small or big adjustments so that you can be more aligned ac across all the different roles and responsibilities that you have in your life. I know for me, as I've tried to do that, life gets simpler. I feel more confident and clear about what value I can add and what I shouldn't try to add because it's just not who I am. Uh, so thanks again to Aaron Levinson for inspiring uh, the, the thought processes and things that are represented here at the end. And of course, most importantly, the interview itself for him sharing his story and experience. Excited to do a, a, a second episode with him as well. So stay tuned for that in the weeks to come and have a terrific day. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Exploring Leadership Podcast. To access free videos, leadership tools, case studies, tutorials, and more about how to engage your leaders at the next level, visit lumenleader.com. We'll see you next time.